How you guys doing? You know, I feel like I haven't talked to a lot of you in, in a couple weeks. Um, it's getting like dark out early. I've got like weird sinus stuff. I'm tired all the time. I'm like, it's that time of year, man. But I'm, I'm glad to be back. Like, this is great. I'm, I'm glad to see you guys again. I'm glad to be here. Sorry I missed the last two weeks, but man, thank you to Nick and Zach for uh, holding out in the fort while I was away. You guys did great. Um, I haven't listened to your message yet, so I don't know if you preached great or not. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, I gotta listen to that yet. But, but everybody's, everybody was here. Nothing caught on fire. What more could you ask? Um, you guys did great. Um, yeah, so like, I've been so tired. Like, I'm, I'm like jet lagged. I was actually talking to Nick and Zach on Sunday night about, you know, maybe I just don't preach this week and maybe we just hang out and that'll give me another week to recover. But I'm like, no, no, we, this has to happen because we have, we have exciting things planned for December. And if we don't finish 1 Timothy 4 or 5, like by Thanksgiving, that stuff can't happen. And by that, I mean, I have exciting things planned that I'll tell you guys about on Thursday uh, when we meet and plan things. Um, so look forward to that. We got exciting stuff in December. How's that for a sneak preview? Um, but tonight we're continuing our study in 1 Timothy 5. Uh, So turn with me to 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 through 20, if you haven't already. And uh, tonight's tonight's an interesting passage. It's a little strange, um, but only only because we make it strange, I think. Our passage tonight covers some responsibilities of church members. And these are important because through this passage, God expresses to us some instructions on how we're to operate in the body of Christ. So let's read 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 20. It says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. So we're talking about elders. And that doesn't just mean we're talking about old people. We're specifically talking about elders that rule, um, so, and, and specifically in a church context. We're ch- talking about spiritual church leaders, pastors, guys who are in charge of running the church. These are the guys who have the responsibility to watch out for your souls. That's what Hebrews 13 says um, in verse 7. It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. And if you jump down to verse 17, it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So pastors have certain responsibilities towards church members. They watch for your souls. They actually must give account for you and, and, and for how well they do that. But their responsibilities toward you are balanced by your responsibilities toward them. And when everyone is fulfilling their God-given responsibilities, well, everyone is doing it with joy rather than grief. It just makes it easier if we're, if we're all doing what God asks us to do towards each other. It just makes it easier for everyone. And there's some stuff in, in here in this passage in 1 Timothy 5 that a lot of Christians seem to have a problem with. Um, and a lot of it has to do with how we as church members view and treat our pastors. Verses 17 and 18 actually talk about paying our pastors, and that's what I mean. Like, this is a weird subject, but it's only weird because we make it weird. It's just what the Word of God says. A lot of people have problems with pastors being paid to serve the Lord. Well, man, shouldn't you? 
Shouldn't you want to serve God for free? Shouldn't you be willing to do all that yourself? Well, yeah, that, that sounds pretty spiritual, but not everything that sounds spiritual is actually biblical. And Christians today have a hard time getting that through their heads, that, that not everything that sounds spiritual is, is biblical. And verses 19 through 20 talk about accusing your pastors of sin and how to deal with them when they do sin. And a lot of people don't even like to think about that. Uh, but the Bible talks about it. So we're going to think about it so that we know how the Bible wants us to act if we find ourselves in a situation where that applies. Um, because you'll find yourself in a situation where that applies. It's applied here at our church before, um, and it will sh- surely apply in the future. Um, but remember that this passage was written to Timothy, who was the lead pastor of his church. So much of the direct application of, of what's being said here has to do with how Timothy acts toward the other spiritual leaders in his church as their leader. But the passage contains a ton of practical stuff for all of us when it comes to dealing with our spiritual leaders. And my, my hope is that by studying this passage tonight, we can all just understand what's expected of us. And, and look, there's, there's guys in here who, who are wanting to serve the Lord vocationally someday as a pastor or a missionary. Certainly that's not everyone in here. But hopefully everyone in here is wanting to continue growing in their walk with God so they can continue serving Him more and more. And we have to understand that our pastors are here to help us do that. That's, that's their job. That's their responsibility uh, is to make sure that they're helping us do that. But that comes with, with some responsibilities from us as well. And those are what we're going to look at tonight. Because the more we understand and apply those responsibilities in our relationships with our pastors, the more effective those relationships can be and the more God can use them in your life to accomplish something fantastic. So let's look at the first responsibility. That's point number one, honor your leaders. I'll read verses 17 and 18 again. It says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. And this is where pastors like to joke around and say that this is their favorite verse in the Bible. Don't muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, brother. Like, like this, this is where God says it's okay to pay your pastor. That's obviously fun, but you know, this is an important principle to understand with, with pastoral leaders in your church. Like I said in the intro, this passage has to do with elders that rule. And in this context, that's referring to spiritual elders. So the, an elder that rules is just a church leader. So it's a pastor who works in a role of responsibility over other members of the church. And the ones that rule well are to be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. And verse 18 lets us know that this double honor, uh, we'll talk about what that is, but verse 18 lets us know that that has to do with a material reward. Um, and and we'll, we'll see that uh, that verse is actually a quote from uh, a, a passage in Deuteronomy. Um, so this isn't really some overly spiritual verse or anything like that. It's not too hard to figure out what it's saying. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn is not some deep spiritual picture. That was a literal command in the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. And I'm pretty sure this just has to do with the ox eating the corn that he's treading out. Because the ox is being used to work the field, to plant the corn, to harvest it, stuff like that. And the command is not to muzzle the ox when he's working the field, because if he's muzzled, he can't eat. His mouth is covered. He can't eat the corn of the field. And the point God's making is that the working ox should be free 
to eat the corn from the field that he's working. He should be able to draw his provision from the work his owner is using him to do. And that principle is applied to spiritual leaders. It's applied to pastors because the ox is just a picture of the servant of God who's been given work to do. God's using the pastor to work the field and the pastor should be able uh, to, to draw provision from that. And that makes sense because serving in a pastoral role is, is a lot of work. Yes, it's an honor and a blessing to have that kind of role. There's a lot of people who want it. The Bible says if you desire the office of a bishop, you desire a good work. But Paul takes some time here to make sure we understand that that role, while it is an honor, that role should be honored because it's a difficult and labor-intensive job, at least when you're doing it the right way, especially for those who spend a lot of time laboring in the Word and in doctrine. Ecclesiastes 12.12 says, And further by these my son be admonished, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And that's an important thing for us to keep in mind because we often think, man, if I just had more time to spend studying God's Word, if we just spent all our time studying the Bible, man, that would be an awesome thing. Well, that's true. It's a great thing. It's fantastic. That's how God communicates His truth to us. That's how He guides us and directs us. But spending all your time studying is hard. It's a lot of work. And if you do it for any length of time, it can be wearying to your flesh. It can be wearying on your, on your physical body. But it's precisely because it's such hard work that God recognizes that this work is worthy of material reward. And again, we're not talking about spiritual rewards or eternal rewards. Like We're just talking about materials. We're talking about provisions. We're talking about physical, material, monetary rewards for labor in the Word. Think about the process. Before you can teach, you have to learn. And in order to learn, you have to study. And studying is work. 2 Timothy 2.15 says you're a workman if you study. And God recognizes that work should result in reward. In this case, work should result in physical provision for your spiritual work. Jesus made sure his disciples understood this. In Luke chapter 10, he says in verse 7, And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give. So the people that they're talking to, they're going into their homes and he says, eat, eat and drink the things that they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. So Jesus said, look, if they're feeding you, keep talking to them because they're, they're, they're earning what it is you have to, to share with them. Like They understand the value of what it is you're saying to them because they're paying for it through, through, their, through their food and drink. And in our passage tonight, Paul's making sure Timothy and his church understand this. Those who labor in the word and in doctrine for you those are valuable guys that are, that are worth your financial support. But that's not all God expects us to do for our pastors. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us how churches should treat their pastors. It says in verses 12 and 13, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. So, we're to know them. And that's 180 degrees flipped from what most churchgoers think about. Most people are highly concerned that their pastor knows them. I just need to make sure this guy knows who I am. He needs to know me. Like, if he doesn't know me, then he's not putting in the effort to know who I am. Man, there aren't very many people who are concerned with knowing their pastor, getting to know them on a personal level. We're also to esteem them very highly for their work's sake. So we should recognize the work they do for us and value them for it. And we're to be at peace among ourselves. So 
They don't have to spend all their time sorting out our carnal problems when we're fighting with one another. Uh, we don't have to go to them and they can fix all our problems for us because they got stuff to do. And so if we're at peace among ourselves, that makes their job easier. Too often we Christians don't consider our attitudes towards our pastors, but we really should. We should understand that good pastors are a gift from the Lord. Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he left captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he describes those gifts down in verse 11. He says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God gave us the gift of spiritual leaders to act as our pastors and teachers so that we would be perfected, so that the work of the ministry could get done, and so that the body of Christ can be edified. God uses our pastors to accomplish all of that in our lives and in our church. And without those pastors, those things just wouldn't happen. And if we don't see the value in that to the point that we're willing to support their work financially, well, we just need to adjust our perspective. We're willing to pay for a subscription to Netflix, where maybe you watch one show and the rest is trash. How much do you pay for Netflix per year? I don't know. I don't pay for it anymore. But are we really willing to pay for things that make our lives more useful to the Lord? If we're willing to pay for Netflix, we should be willing to pay for that too. And please don't think I'm suggesting that you show up to church and start slipping 10s and 20s in the pockets of your pastors. Like, <laughs> Don't do that. That would be very weird. But your faithful giving to your church is what pays for your pastors to be able to labor in the word and doctrine to the extent that they're able to. Because without the faithful giving of church members, they'd have to labor to provide for their families before they could start working in the word to provide for the church. And look, I'm only preaching this because this is the passage we're in tonight. We're just working our way through 1 Timothy 5, and technically I'm not a pastor, so I'm kind of off the hook. Uh, praise the Lord. We have a wonderful church that understands this principle and regularly goes above and beyond to support its pastors. So this isn't like this isn't a topic that, that needs to be preached really hard to our church members because, because they get it. Just yesterday, the church decided to buy lunch for the pastors and their wives to, to show their appreciation for what they do. Praise the Lord for our church and its appreciation of its pastors. But this principle is pretty simple. If a pastor puts in the work to keep a body of believers spiritually healthy, they should take care of his physical needs so he doesn't have to worry about those. That's what 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11 communicates. And I believe, that, I believe that is the principle of double honor that Paul's talking about here. And that's important for us to understand because most of us are aware that being a good pastor, being a good minister, will earn some spiritual rewards that last into eternity. We see that in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. It says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And that's the balancing principle to this whole idea. God, some, God has some eternal rewards lined up for pastors who do their job correctly. <clears throat> Specifically, he has a crown of glory that doesn't fade away. So pastors shouldn't see their role as just a job or a way to make money. They should see their role as a way to make an eternal difference in the lives of their church members. 
And, and God will reward them for it, regardless of how they draw their paycheck, regardless of how they put food on their table. <clears throat> Excuse me. God will reward them in eternity for their hard work. Well, I believe that these eternal spiritual rewards, that, that, that's the first honor. God will give those to, to these elders that rule well, no matter what. That's the honor that they'll always get. And I think the second honor, or the, the double honor, is just the material payment for their work. But not all pastors can get paid. Not all pastors go to a church where there's enough money to support someone's salary. Not all pastors are paid enough to live off of. And, and that's okay, because notice the passage just says that the church should count their leaders worthy of double honor. Well, just because they're worthy of it, that doesn't mean they'll always get it. Every circumstance is different. All I believe these verses are saying is that if a church has the financial resources to support its pastor or pastors, well, then it should, because what they do is, is, worth, is worth the time and effort that they put into it. It's our job as church members to understand that and make sure we're giving of our finances in a way that can help the church financially support its pastors. We just need to understand and value the work pastors do in our lives. Because without the pastors leading and directing our church, the, the work of the Lord wouldn't get done. And financially supporting a pastor doesn't actually require as many resources as, as we might think. I mean, think about it. If the families in a church understand the biblical principle of tithing, you know, setting aside a tenth of what you have, laying it up in store for the Lord uh, so, that, so that the church has money to operate with, well, if, if giving families in a church understand that, then it really only takes 10 giving families to support the family of one pastor, right? Well, praise the Lord, we go to a church where there's many giving families, and I thank the Lord I get to be a part of a church that has been blessed with so many giving families that it can support several pastors who can work together to make sure the work of the Lord is happening, they can labor in the word and doctrine together, and they can make sure that our church is able to reach the community in an effective way. And I fully realize that this is a little awkward for me to talk about because I happen to draw my paycheck from the church. Now, I don't get paid much, but that's okay. It's the passage that we're going through tonight. <clears throat> so let's make sure we hear what Paul is saying and value the work that our pastors do for us because I think if we're honest, those guys make a huge difference in our lives in, in ways that we often forget to think about. Man, sometimes we take them for granted, myself included. <clears throat> Excuse me. But honoring our leaders isn't the only responsibility we're going to talk about tonight. We're also going to see that church members should, number two, be careful with accusations. And that's what we see in verse 19. And they should especially be careful with accusations of their pastors. Verse 19 again says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And this one's pretty simple, but we don't often apply it in our lives. We don't often think about it uh, very often. The idea is that if someone is accusing a church leader of something, we shouldn't even listen to the accusation unless there's two or three witnesses. And yes, Paul is writing this to Timothy, the lead pastor of the church. So the direct application is that the lead pastor shouldn't hear your accusation if you're the only one making the accusation. But we, shouldn't, but we should draw the same application in our lives. We shouldn't entertain accusations of our church leaders and pastors without proof, without evidence, without witnesses. And I get it, this one might seem a little weird, because sometimes bad things happen, and there aren't two or three witnesses. But we have to recognize that Scripture is commanding us to do this. 
So we need to have faith that God will make sure there are two or three witnesses when he's ready to discipline his servant. So we need to trust God that God will bring things to light as necessary. And let me balance that with saying that if you're a witness to or, or victim of some kind of assault or harm behind closed doors or anything like that, call the police. Let the police investigate the crime and bring evidence to light. The principle of two or three witnesses doesn't exist to let pastors get away with sin. The principle just exists to protect them from false witnesses. Because the Bible is clear that false witnesses exist. Psalm 27, 12 says, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. And then Psalm 35 says in verse 11 and 12, False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. So God's requirement of having two to three witnesses just prevents the one false witness from accusing you of something you didn't do. And if you serve God for any length of time, you're going to have false witnesses accusing you of doing things you didn't do. It's just going to happen. We know it's going to happen because it happened to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, well, surely it's going to happen to those who follow him. Luke 6, 7 says, And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find accusation against him. They were looking for him to do something that they could throw an accusation against him. These were just dudes that were looking for something they could accuse him of. And you wouldn't believe how often this kind of thing happens in churches, especially in the context of pastors. You know, we're not too many years removed from a difficult situation at our church that all started with a sleazy pastor who, who's no longer here, who was looking for a way to accuse his boss of something, anything, so that he could take his job. Well, the principle of two or three witnesses protected our church through those accusations, and the principle will continue to protect God's servants in the future. Psalm 105.15 says, saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. So God looks out for the dudes who are working hard to serve the body of Christ. God put them in a position of responsibility and leadership. You better believe God has their back. But the point we need to take away from this verse is that we need to be very careful with the accusations that we levy against other people. That's not to say there's never a time to accuse a pastor of wrongdoing. We'll get to verse 20 in a minute. But making a false accusation can, can be pretty disastrous for you. Uh, Proverbs 30 verse 10 says, Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and thou be found guilty. So you make a false accusation, buckle up. You're going to be found guilty, and, and that's never a situation you want to find yourself in. So be careful before you accuse anyone of anything. Make sure you have other witnesses or proof to corroborate the accusation. But verse 20 has the balancing principle to this, and that's number three, make sure sin is rebuked. Uh, and that's verse 20. It says, Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. And the context here remains the elder that we've been talking about, the spiritual leader, the pastor. Because there will be cases in which an accusation of sin is valid. And when that happens, rebuke is the answer, specifically a, a public rebuke. It says, them that sin rebuke before all. But also recognize the way that this sentence is written means that the accuser needs to be rebuked if the accusation that he made was found to be false. Essentially, when an accusation is made, Whichever party is found to be in sin, them that sin, well, they need to be rebuked before everyone involved. So your job is to hold others to a biblical standard of righteousness 
in dealing with any problem that might come up. But before anyone is willing to entertain an accusation, there has to be confirmation of the problem. If there is confirmation of the problem, well, rebuke is the necessary response to a valid accusation. If there's not confirmation of the problem, then the accusation isn't valid, and rebuking the accuser is the answer. So in these scenarios, we have to recognize that this rebuke must take place. Too often, we're tempted to sweep things under the rug or handle things quietly. We're like, oh, he didn't mean it. He won't do it again. It's okay. But doing that means the people involved don't get to see the full resolution of the problem. If we're just keeping things quiet, well, no one's going to see it. And that's the reason why this rebuke needs to happen. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also might fear. So you're, you're not just doing it to handle the problem. You're doing it for the benefit of everyone involved. Proverbs 21.11 says, When a scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he receiveth knowledge. And that's the point. This type of rebuke needs to happen so that others don't make the same mistake as the guilty party. So if a guy falsely accuses someone, rebuke him so that everyone can see, oh, that accusation was false. He should have been more careful with that accusation. I should be more careful with accusations in the future. Or if, some, if an accusation is legitimate, like, oh, that accusation was real. That guy did those things. That's not good. I shouldn't do those things either. Everybody learns from those situations. That's exactly what Paul did with Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 14 says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So Peter was acting Jewish around his Jewish friends, and he was acting not Jewish around his Gentile friends. And that was contrary to the truth that in the church there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So Paul rebuked him in front of everyone that saw him doing it, so that everyone would know that what Peter was doing was wrong because they they looked to Peter as a spiritual leader. And what they saw him doing, they needed to know was wrong. And so Paul rebuked him for it. And from what I gather elsewhere in Scripture, Peter responded well to Paul's rebuke, and he stopped doing those things. Praise the Lord. But not every rebuke ends up that way. Paul also rebuked sin in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 say, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. So this guy was sleeping with his stepmom, I guess. I don't know. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this, this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in sight, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this guy was fornicating with his stepmom, and his church did nothing about it. Well, Paul rebuked that, because that's obvious sin. And he rebuked the church for not dealing with his sin. And because he was unrepentant, he had to be removed from the church. 
And sure, that doesn't seem very pleasant, but that was actually a healthy thing for the church as a whole. The passage goes on in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So the church as a whole became more pure because it removed the unrepentant sinner from its congregation. God cares about the purity of his church. And that's why it's so important to rebuke sin when it occurs. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And the church of God is God's temple, not the building, the people. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and together we are the temple of God. And God's temple can't be made out of unrepentant people. But this principle is obviously balanced by grace. So we're, we're all still stuck in our sinful, fleshful, fleshly bodies. Like that's, that's the reality of the situation. So sin is always going to exist until Jesus returns and gives us glorified bodies and, and fixes that problem forever. That's why we need to treat each other with grace and give each other the benefit of the doubt. So if you see a brother or a sister in Christ sinning, Public rebuke is, is not the first step you should take. It's actually the last step you should take. And it's not even really a step that, that you should take. It's actually something for, for a pastor to handle. Your first step should just be talking to your brother and sister in Christ about what you're seeing in their life and offering to help them through it. Like, look, dude, I see you struggling with this. How can I help you? Like, I used to struggle with this too. Or, or we're just trying to work together to help each other struggle. Your first response to someone sinning shouldn't be, I saw what you did and I'm going to tell everybody. Like, obviously that's, that's incorrect. Um, you know, don't go accusing people and rebuking people when, when a simple conversation would suffice. But that's how we should understand this passage tonight. As fellow members of Christ's body, specifically this local body at First Baptist Church, I mean, each of us has responsibilities toward one another. Whether, whether pastors are having responsibility towards church members, church members having responsibilities towards pastors, or church members having responsibilities towards other church members, we all have responsibilities. And I know we only talked about three tonight, but we've been talking about our responsibilities throughout our study in 1 Timothy. Like all summer long, up until now, that's what we've been talking, talking about. But to wrap up tonight, we talked about honoring our spiritual leaders, valuing the work they do for us, and seeking to reward them for it. We talked about being careful with accusations, making sure we have proof before we throw around ideas of what people may or may not be doing wrong. And we talked about rebuke when sin does occur, primarily as a way to protect the body from future sin of a similar nature. Look, I know tonight's message was simple, but these are some incredibly important principles, and, and we can't let those fall out of the back of our mind. Like We just have to be ready to handle situations in a biblical way if we want to be a church that's thriving and being used by God. So if we as Christians are going to serve the Lord together, man, these principles give us some basic ground rules for how we're to operate with one another. So what do you need to do as a result of what we studied tonight? Do you need to adjust your perspective on what the leaders in our church and in your ministry do for you? Have you been taking that for granted? Do you need to think more about that and uh, just understand the value of, of, of what the other people in your church add to your life? Do you need to be more careful with how you talk about others? Man, how many times do we accuse people behind their back? Like, How many times do we say something behind someone's back and it, it's actually an accusation? And whether or not it's true, 
man, the person who hears it doesn't know if it's true or not. And so now they're going to think it's true. And now they're going to throw that same accusation around to another group of people. We can't, we can't be like that. Or is there sin in our church body that, that you know of that needs to be dealt with? Whether it's in your own life or in the life of your brother and sister in Christ, if that's the case, man, just make sure you deal with it in grace. If it's in your own life, handle it. Handle it with the Lord. Give it over to the Lord. If it's in a brother or sister in Christ, man, just talk to him. And, and the whole point is, like, life isn't easy. Serving the Lord is not an easy thing. But we can make it easier for each other if we just do what the Bible says and treat each other right. If we just understand our responsibility to help one another and to be a, be a friend to one another, um, man, we can, we can really help each other make a difference in eternity. So let's commit to just doing that tonight. Uh, I know that's really simple, but praise the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, man, for... Uh, just clearly communicating your expectations for us in your word. Um, sometimes, Lord, we look at a passage like tonight that's so incredibly simple and we, we just brush past it and we don't, we don't really take time to apply it because maybe we've, we feel like we've applied it before. Um, but man, I just pray tonight, God, that you would just convict us where we need convicted and uh, show us what application we need to make in our life and uh, that we would just consider how we can uh, be better uh, fellow church members towards each other, towards our leaders, and, and, and better, more effective ministers for you. God, I pray that this would be a place where, uh, man, we just encourage, edify, and embolden one another to, to share the gospel and to serve you at every step. Lord, we love you and just pray that you give us a good time of fellowship tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.